Well, good morning to all of you. We're going to be in Psalm 72 today as we continue on in our Songs for Summer series. And I hope that you've been enjoying this. I hope that these psalms have been an encouragement to you. I know they have been to me. I've entitled this psalm, Long Live the King. This is a psalm, if you look at the top, and there's a little note there right at the beginning of Psalm 72, and it just simply says, of Solomon. This is one of two psalms that is attributed to King Solomon, the other one being Psalm 127 that comes later in the book. Now there's two differing views on what that means. Does it mean it's written by Solomon, which is possible. There's references in this passage, as we'll see today, to the reign of Solomon. That makes sense when you take into consideration his life and his reign as king of Israel. It's possible that this is maybe a prayer written by Solomon himself, asking God for guidance, asking God for his blessing as he began his reign. In 1 Kings 3, we have that account where Solomon, where God basically comes to Solomon and says, what, would you, what do you want? I will grant your request. And Solomon says, God, please give me wisdom. Please give me that wisdom to guide your people. I'm young, I need it. And that heart of Solomon to ask God. And so you see that in this chapter. So one possibility of Psalm 72 was that it was written by Solomon. Another possibility is that it was written to Solomon or for Solomon by someone else. Most likely his dad, King David. David, maybe this is David's blessing on his son, the successor, the next king in the line, the Davidic line of kings. The Septuagint refers to this psalm as a psalm for Solomon. So it's unclear as to where Solomon fits in this. But we know that Psalm 72 is also the end of a book. It's the end of the second book in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is divided into five books. And here, if you look at your Bible, you'll see a little note there saying that this is the conclusion of book number two at the end of this chapter. And at the end of these books, these five books, one thing that is common with all of them, there's a doxology about praise, about that God would bless, that his blessing would be upon his people, and there's an amen, and that's pretty common. And we'll see that at the end of chapter 72 today. There's three ways of looking at psalm. One is it's a royal psalm. It's written to the king. It's asking God's blessing on the king of Israel. It would most likely have been read or sung at a coronation um, of one of the kings of Israel. So it's a royal psalm, but it's also a prophetic psalm. A lot of the things that this psalm talks about are prophetic in nature. In fact, it sounds a lot like maybe the book of Isaiah or some of the other Old Testament prophets. There's references here to things that God had promised his people, Israel, that that are still future. So it's a royal psalm, it's a prophetic psalm, but it's also a messianic psalm. It looks beyond David and Solomon to the Messiah, the son of David, coming later. It's a prayer for the Davidic king back then, but it's also looking forward, and it's an expression of hope in the glorious and just rule of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And 
as I preached through this psalm, I couldn't help, and I know you can't help but see Jesus in this. And so today as I read through Psalm 72, I hope that we will see that Jesus is being spoken of here. Jesus is the one that will reign. And really, to summarize this whole chapter, to keep it simple, it's simply this. Jesus will reign, so we need to rejoice. That really summarizes Psalm 72. So let's take a look at this chapter, the first four verses to start off. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. That first word there, endow, it's give. Lord, would you please give the king your justice and your righteousness. It's the only command, it's the only imperative in this psalm. Recognizing that God is the source of the justice, God is the source of the righteousness. The ability does not come from the king. It comes from God. It's the very character of God. And the king is simply a channel of God's nature, of God's character. And those two words I want to focus on a little bit, justice and righteousness. And in the note taker, um, I have a definitions here. The first one is justice. The Hebrew word is mishpat. It's giving people what they are due, whether punishment, protection, or care. So there's punishment in it. There's also care and protection. But it's that word justice. That's what this word is. And the second word is righteousness. The word there is zudaka. The word there has to do with a life of right relationship with God and with others. It's doing What's right? So these two words together form this concept of justice. What is God's justice? I came across an article from Tim Keller, and I wanted to read some of this because he brings these two words together beautifully. Micah 6.8 tells us, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Number one, to act justly. Number two, to love mercy. And number three, to walk humbly with your God. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. It occurs in various forms more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. We call that equal rights under the law here in the United States. But mishpat means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. Mishpat then is giving people what they're due, punishment, protection, or care. This is why, if you look at every place the word mishpat is used in the Old Testament, several classes of people continually come up. Over and over again, Mishpat describes taking up the care and cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Those who have been called the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament. 
in pre-modern agrarian societies, these four groups had no social power. They lived at subsistence level and were only days from starvation if there was famine, invasion, or even minor social unrest. They were living on the edge. Today, this quartet would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, single parents, elderly people, physically disabled, and I would include the unborn in that list. Mishpat, or justice of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how well it treats these groups. I'm losing my place here. I'm sorry about that. Let me move forward. We get more insight when we consider a second Hebrew word, and that's the word that I mentioned earlier, this idea of righteousness. Sadaqwa. It refers to a life of right relationship. When most modern people see the word righteousness, in the Bible, they tend to think of it in terms of private morality, such as sexual chastity or diligence in prayer and Bible study. But in the Bible, this word refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. It's not surprising then to discover that these two words, justice and righteousness, are brought together scores of times in the Bible. These two words roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is mishpat. It means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. Primary justice, or zadekwa, is behavior that if it was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship with everyone else. It would be unnecessary. Therefore, Though righteousness is primarily about being a right relationship with God, the righteous life that results is profoundly social. That's why we call it social justice. When these two words, mishpat and zedekah, are tied together, they are are used over three dozen times together. The English expression that best conveys the meaning is social justice. And that's been a term that's been in our news, it's been on our minds a lot. And it's been around, it's in God's heart. This idea of having justice and righteousness come together. Verse three says, when the king is in line with God, when the king is acting justly and righteously, all of creation functions as it should. In verse three it says, the mountains bring prosperity to the people. The hills, the fruit of righteousness. Now, oftentimes in Scripture, mountains and hills are used kind of as a symbol of government. Mountains refer to big government. That'd be like national government. The hills, the smaller, local governments that would govern the people. When government is doing justly, when government is acting in a righteous manner, the people prosper. That word prosperity there is shalom, peace. It refers to wholeness, harmony, unity, and completeness. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what happens when our government, our king, is acting justly and rightly? And then verse four talks about three acts of justice and righteousness. Number one, defending the afflicted. That speaks of equal justice for those that are weaker in our society. The second part of that is saving the children of the needy. That talks about caring for the most vulnerable. 
in our society, compassion and charity towards them. And then it says, crushing the oppressor. This is the law. This is the punishment that is doled out to those who are oppressing others that is needed in our society. In Genesis 3.15, way back at the beginning, there's a promise made there at the curse that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman, Christ, will crush the oppressor, Satan, in our lives. That's the promise that we have in Jesus. But we also know that his righteous reign, the fact that he will be judged someday. So we read in the book of Revelation, in chapter eleven, eighteen, it says the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. There's going to be a day where Jesus, will, the righteous judge, will crush the oppressors, will take out those who are evil. So Jesus will reign in justice and righteousness, and he will do it well. And that's the heart cry of our culture right now. We need this greatly, but we don't know where to turn, and so we're struggling. We also know that Jesus will reign forever. Look at verses five through seven. It says, may he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like a shower watering the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. Jesus will reign forever. Now there's a little bit in some of your translations if you're reading maybe out of the King James or out of the ESV, it says, you will be feared instead of may he endure. This idea that because of his righteous and just reign, Jesus will be feared. But the flow of this passage and really the theme of these verses has to do with endurance and longevity of his reign. And it mentions the sun and the moon there in verse 5. The sun and the moon were established by God at creation. This idea, they were symbols of longevity and endurance. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says, his kingdom is as lasting as the lights of heaven. Days and nights will cease before he abdicates his throne. Revelation, it's interesting if you think about it, going back into Genesis 1, on day one we had light. Let there be light, and we had light. It wasn't until day four that God created the sun, the moon, the stars to govern the different times to make one day, one night. And those beautiful things that he created. So light existed prior to the sun, the moon, and the stars. We see in Revelation 21 in the New Jerusalem, it says there's no need anymore for the sun and the moon because the glory of God and the Lamb will light the New Jerusalem. But when we think in terms of moon and sun, we think of longevity, the fact that Jesus will reign forever over his creation. We had some great opportunity a couple weeks ago at Cape Lookout. We had some very clear, beautiful nights, and so we would just take a few moments as the sun would go down. We'd walk to the beach, kind of the tradition there at Cape Lookout, 
watched the sun set on the horizon. We were just grateful for uh, clear days, and we got to see the sun set. In the morning, the sun, the sunrise is beautiful there. And, but at night, this time maybe more than any other time, it just seemed like it was clear. And so we would walk out, get away from the campfires for a moment, and just look up. And we could see the comet that was around back then. With the naked eye, you could see it. It was right out over the ocean. It was beautiful. And then to our left, we could see the moon and the beauty of the moon. And I just want to encourage you in the summer months when we have those beautiful clear skies, what a great time to remember the fact that Jesus Christ reigns eternally. When you look at the moon, when you look at the sun rising and setting, be reminded of that fact. He's there. David was promised by God that his kingdom would last forever. We call it the Davidic covenant. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it says, your house, David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That was true of David, not because of anything he did, but because his ancestor was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and his reign would extend into all eternity. The book of Revelation speaks about to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise, honor, glory forever and ever. That is the reign of Jesus Christ. And I love verse 6 and 7. It's like because of his eternal reign, it's like he's like rains that come down on mown lawns. He's like showers that come down on the grass. This last week on Thursday, I love getting up and Instead of seeing sunshine, which I love, by the way, I got up and I heard the rain. And there's just something about, in the dryness of summer, to see rain. The king who's following God is like rain that comes down on dry grass. It makes it flourish, makes it prosper. There's just this beautiful picture there. Again, that word prosperity is shalom. There's peace. Jesus will reign with justice, with righteousness forever, but Jesus will reign universally. He's going to reign everywhere. Verses 8 through 11 here. It says, May he rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Sabah present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. It's a universal reign. It's from sea to sea there in verse 8. It's worldwide. You know, under David and Solomon, they had a very extensive kingdom, probably the greatest in the Old Testament times, but nothing compared to Christ's kingdom. Nothing compared to the Messiah. Sea to sea. You know, when we look geographically on our globe, there's seven seas. There are seven oceans that span this globe, going north and south and east and west. And what the author's saying here, no matter where you are in this world, Jesus reigns over it. Whether it be the Arctic Ocean up north and the extent there, or the Antarctic in the south and everywhere in between, he's there. From the sea, it says, to the ends of the earth. The sea, or excuse me, the river, the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. 
This is quoted again in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 10. We see this in Acts, chapter 1. You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28, you're going to make disciples of all nations. So why? Why is, is Jesus so adamant that we make disciples of all nations? Because he reigns over all. He is the king over all this world. You know, we have the incredible opportunity to have the teeters here with us for a short time, living over here in the duplex. And I've known Dan and Margie, and I've known about their ministry down there in Brazil for for many years. And it's been an inspiration to me, and I know to many of you, because their passion is to get the Word of God out to people in the jungles, the distant jungles down there in the Amazon area of Brazil and to make sure that they know of this Jesus who reigns over all the earth. And the Lord has blessed their ministry and their faithfulness to it. So Dan and Margie, I just want to say you are an inspiration to us. And we, in you, we see the word of God going out to all nations. Verse 9 speaks about not only in terms of geography, but in terms of anthropology, in terms of people. Verse 9 says the desert tribes... It's, they're looking east across the river, the Jordan River, to the tribes that would have been in the desert regions of the east. And they talk, it talks about licking the dust. This was a sign of defeat. In their culture, licking the dust meant you lost. That's one way you're groveling, you're down, you're, you're humbled. In Genesis 3.14, the curse that was put on the snake, on the serpent was you will you will crawl around on your belly and you will eat dust your entire life. That was the curse put on the serpent there in Genesis chapter 3. It's a sign of defeat. The king will have victory over his enemies to the east. And then he turns his direction west in verse 10 to the kings of Tarshish and the distant shores. He's looking across the Mediterranean seas. Tarshish would have been Spain what is now the country of Spain. In their mind, that was as far west as their mind could really conceive. That was as far west as the Mediterranean trade happened around the Mediterranean Sea. The distant shores, the extent of the trade. The story of Jonah. God says, I want you to go north and east to Nineveh. What did Jonah do? He went about as far in the opposite direction very mindfully of what God wanted him to do. He went west towards Tarshish. And God had to intervene, turn him around, get him going in the right direction. So God, you're over the people to the east, you're over the people to the west. They're just gonna bring things to you from the west. And then he looks south to Sheba and Sabah. That would be the South Arabian Peninsula and Africa. We know in the time of Solomon in 1 Kings 10, it talks about the Queen of Sheba bringing all these gifts and all these spices to the King Solomon. She wanted to learn about him. She'd heard about him. So there's this picture of her coming with her caravan from this area down south, possibly Africa and portions of there. But God, you reign over east, the west, the south. This idea of bringing tribute, bringing gold. In Revelation 21, verse 24 and 26 It prophesies a time where all the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into this new Jerusalem. 
to the king. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. There's going to be a king. There's going to be a place where all of the kings of the world will bring their wealth into it. And that is the picture of Jesus Christ in the end. Verse 11 says, All kings, all nations will bow down and serve him. That was not true of David. That was not true of Solomon. That was not true of any of the other Old Testament kings. They had enemies that at times would exercise power over them. But we know that's true of Jesus Christ because in Philippians 2, it says every knee will bow, every tongue is going to confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. All kings and all nations will bow down and serve him, Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts was a hymn writer, and I just wanted to read a little introduction to him. And he wrote a hymn based on Psalm 72. It's called Jesus Shall Reign. So here's just a little story about Isaac Watts. He lived from 1674 to 1748. He was one of the earliest and most prominent hymn writers to Christianize the Psalms. In fact, he is known as the father of English hymnody. In Watts' day, most churches permitted their congregations to sing only psalms, no hymns. Interesting. Watts became impatient with some of the poor poetry based on the psalms and with being unable to sing about the Christian faith in the New Testament terms, so he decided to Christianize some of the psalms to bring them into the New Testament thinking, into our day. His Christianized psalms opened the door in many churches to accepting hymns in public worship. Most Christians are familiar with Jesus shall reign, but perhaps not are all aware that this is Watts' free paraphrase of Psalm 72. I just want to read a little stanza out of his hymn. It says, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his excessive journeys run. His kingdom stretches from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. He brings in verse 5 when it talks about the moon and the sun. And he brings in verse 8. The fact that it goes from shore to shore, the distant lands. That is the reign of Jesus Christ. He's going to reign with justice, righteousness. He's going to reign forever. He's going to reign universally from shore to shore. But I love verses 12 to 4. This is a king who's going to reign with compassion. This is what it says. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy. He will save the needy from death. He will rescue them from the oppression and violence. For precious is their blood in his sight. This is a compassionate king. It goes back in talking about what we saw in verse 4. The righteousness, the justice, and how it would reach out to those that were in need. We see it here in verses 12 to 14. Number one, he delivers the needy who cry out. When I read that, I think of the New Testament and the Gospels and Jesus doing miracles, and we had people crying out, have mercy on me, son of David. Heal me. Help me, I can't see, I I can't walk, I need you, Jesus. And there was just this crying out. And Jesus would come and deliver them from whatever it was. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who cries out, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our Savior. 
Everyone who cries out to him will be saved. He delivers the needy who cry out in verse 12. He takes pity on the weak in verse 13. That word takes pity means to be troubled about or to look compassionately on something. I'm troubled about something when I see people hurt, when I see injustice done, when I see people in a bad way. I should be troubled about that and I should act with compassion towards that. It's the same word that's used in the Good Samaritan parable in the New Testament. He was walking along the Samaritan and he saw a person injured on the road. He was, he took pity. He was troubled about it and he looked compassionately on that person and he did something about it. And that's the same idea of our God who reigns. He's troubled about what he sees and he looks compassionately on us. It's not some detached condescension, but it's this endearment. It's this love where he reaches out for us. And then verse 14, he rescues them from oppression and violence. The word rescue there is redeem, to purchase, to buy back. He rescues them. The word them is the word for soul. It's not just social work, but it's rescuing, redeeming, their soul. That's what we really need, isn't it? We need our soul rescued, not just our body, not just more money, which are good. And he, there's two kinds of mistreatment that he rescues them from. There's oppression, there's violence. Oppression is a little more subtle. It's exploiting those that are less powerful than me. It can sometimes be very subtle, but it's there. And then there's violence, the obvious where it's ruthless and it's cruel. God rescues those from both kinds. And I love that statement there. Precious is their blood in his sight. You know, everyone's blood, everyone's life, that's really what it means there. Everyone's life is precious to God. We observe each year, usually in the month of January, Sanctity of Life Sunday because we know that God values life. We as Christians are pro-life. We are all about saving life. The church has always been an influence for life throughout our history and continues to be and will continue to be. We see the gospel in these verses. We see the compassion of Christ and the fact that he took pity on us, the fact that we cried out to him he rescued our souls and he brought us life through his blood. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 19 speaks of this. You know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's the gospel. He looked on us with compassion he redeemed us through his own blood, the blood of the Lamb of Christ. Jesus' reign will be blessed. Verse 15 to 17, long may he live, long live the king. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Just a beautiful picture of just the wheat and the grain swaying in the wind. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. 
May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Going back to that reference. Then all the nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. The psalm began with a prayer for the king, that God would endow him with righteousness and justice. And getting now to the end, it gets that God would move in his life. Would God give him an extended reign? Long live the king. Would God bless him? So it, there's reference to his blessing in this one. David and Solomon had a long reign by God's grace. But again, it's not, it's not referring necessarily to them here. It's referring to the, the Messiah who would come later. People praying for him and blessing him. Solomon needed God, prayer. David needed the prayer of God's people. Jesus Christ doesn't. But there's a hope there that if the king is blessed, we'll be blessed. And that's true today in our government. If the government is blessed, if they're doing what's right, guess what? It's passed down to us as people. But if they're not following God, if they're not acting righteously and justly, it's going to impact us. It's going to filter down to you and me. So verse 16 speaks of this grain just abounding through the land on the tops of the hills and the crops flourishing like Lebanon. You know, in the nation of Lebanon, and I've seen pictures from my brother, my friend John, he sent me pictures from Lebanon as he's traveled there to see his family, and there's this beautiful groves of, of cedar there, still to this day, scattered throughout the land, and they're just, they're beautiful. And it's this idea that the crops would flourish like the cedars in Lebanon. And as I read that, my heart was kind of drawn to Beirut, in the events that have just happened there in the past week and that explosion that just wiped out a huge portion of the city and the people that perished in that blast and that we can be praying for them, the people, our brothers and sisters in Lebanon and specifically in the city of Beirut today. They need our prayer. Verse 17 talks about the name. May his name endure forever and may it continue as long as the sun. When we talk about someone's name, we're talking about their presence, we're talking about their power, we're talking about their authority, their character, we're talking about a relationship with them, we know them, we've entered into a relationship. All those things are tied up in that idea of a name. And this idea that, there in verse 17, that nations will be blessed through his name. We saw the Davidic covenant earlier in the fact that the reign of David through Jesus Christ will be forever. That David's kingdom will be established and go on. This is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant earlier in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, where it says, Abraham, through you, you're going to be a blessing. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the reference there is not just Abraham, but it's a reference to the Messiah. Through you, and then through your people Israel, will come, come the Messiah. And through him, blessing will be passed on to all of the earth. Jesus' reign will be blessed, and it will be a blessing. Verses 18 to 20, this is that doxology. At the end of book two, at the end of this chapter, here's what it says. It's beautiful. It just says, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, Lord God 
who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That's the doxology. And then verse 20, this concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. It's the end of book two here. So verse one, it's a prayer for the Davidic king. Verse, verses 18, 19, it's a praise for God, the king, the real king. This doxology, and again, these doxologies are very similar. You see one at the end of chapter 41, one at the end here, chapter 89, chapter 106, and then at the very end of Psalms, at one, chapter 150. They basically all say kind of the same thing. Praise the Lord, praise his name, from everlasting to everlasting, and then amen. And that's what they all look like, and they end the book. We're praising God for two things, his marvelous deeds and his glorious name. Jesus' reign is a blessing. It's going to be a blessing to all people. In conclusion, I just want us to think in terms of praying. We need to be praying for our governing authorities. I want to encourage you, if you haven't been coming on Wednesdays, and if you're available at Wednesday at noon, come. That's what we do. We just pray for those that are governing us. Pray for our city. Pray for needs that are happening around us. We need to be doing that. Because the reality, if they're good, things are going to go well. If things are out of line, it's going to affect us all. So keep praying for our governing authorities. But I also want you to know we're not to depend on them for all of our needs. They can't solve all of our problems. They never will. We can't rely on them to solve. There's a lot of angst right now, even amongst Christians, entering into the election season, coming here in November. And I understand it is important who's our president, but at the end of the day, we know for sure that Jesus reigns. That doesn't change. The reality is he's always going to reign. He didn't get voted in. He won't get voted out. He's there for all eternity. He's not just... For us here in the United States, he is for the whole world. And sometimes I think our focus is too much just on us and what's going on right here, maybe in my life and my nation. God's care goes out to the whole world. He cares about everyone. His reign is true justice and righteousness. He will make sure that the needy get taken care of, the oppressed have justice in their life. Jesus will reign, so we need to rejoice. And I want you to hear this morning that Jesus is not just my personal Savior. He is. And I'm so thankful for the fact that He saved me. He is my Savior, but He is my reigning King. Revelation 5.13, it says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise, honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. Amen.